Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Welcome back. Hello. Did you miss me? A lot. Did you listen to the episode with Melissa while you were away? I love Melissa. I can't quite bring myself to because it's quite painful hearing you have such fun with another co-host. Having a great time, tipping your heads back with laughter, frolicking. Chortling. Chortling. Yes, yes. Um, But she's great, Melissa, isn't she? She is. She'd be a good replacement for me as well. She'd be a good replacement for me. No, you're irreplaceable. So did you have a nice 50th birthday sojourn? Well, yes, yes. I had a little mini break. I had some uh, annual leave that I needed to uh, use up before the year rolled over, you yes. see. So um, my wife took me away for my birthday to Marrakesh and, and it was great. I did get a dicky tummy though. Oh dear. But not until on the plane on the way home, which is perfect. Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. It was very obvious to the lady sitting next to me because I was in the middle seat. You could have switched seats with her, offered to switch seats, say, look, I'm not feeling that well. Maybe we should switch seats. Nobody wants a middle seat though, do they? No. How did she take it? She was very kind, but she also, it looked to me like she had some difficulty standing up. So I ended up just going and loitering in that bit where the uh, where the cabin crew hang out. It's not the vestibule, is Maybe it? Maybe it's the galley. But apart from that, it was a good time. Oh, it's fantastic. Went on a camel. Wow. Have you ever ridden a camel? I think I may have done, actually. We were in Egypt a few years back. I think I might have wimped out, actually. It's a, a sort of slightly lost in the mists of time. I think I may have done. Now, we should mention our board treading. We should, and what illustrious boards we will be treading. To be or not to be? That is the question. Sorry, what's the question? <laughs> what are you asking, asking me? To be at our podcast live in Stratford or not to be? Oh, yeah. At our podcast live in Stratford. That is the well, question. Well, I think to be, to be is the to answer. Be. be there or be square, as William Shakespeare once said. Yes. You'd be suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to not be there. And it's not just us. It's a festival. Oh, yeah, the festival's incredible. It's, uh, it's, it's live at the RSC, uh, which returns. It's going to be happening over the course of, I think, almost a week. So from the 31st of May, which is Wednesday, through to the Sunday. Yeah. The lineup's great. The RSC are uh, doing some wonderful things, as you would expect, like As You Like It and Macbeth, but also lots of really great comedy. The one that stands out for me is Firm Brady, whose book, Strong Female Character, has been, uh, I think, a publishing sensation this year. It's about being an autistic person, and it is a fantastic memoir. Ostentatious, the improvised Jane Austen show, which uh, is always good fun. Ivo Graham, who you might know from Taskmaster, Jess Foster Q, um, Nina Conti, who's very funny. And we're on at 2pm on the Saturday, uh, which is the 3rd of June. And if you want to, then you can take in a hamnet on Saturday evening, 7.30. You, you should go for a mini break. This is what we're suggesting. I mean, come to our show. Yep. If you just want to come for our show, great. But the stuff that is going on at this festival is, is really something. You can find... A link 
to get tickets to our show in the in, in the notes of this podcast. Uh, but also, if you Google Live at the RSC, uh, you'll find some brilliant things on their lineup. And I hate to say this, but, you know, I am rather busy, as are you, and so I'm not sure how many more live shows we're going to do this year. So if you want to see us in the flesh... I mean, I don't want to go too far. It's not quite like Elton John and Glasgow this year. Is it not, though? Yeah, I think I think it, maybe the comparison's a little bit overblown. You think? Really? Paul McCartney last year. I think it's maybe... I don't want to go too far. But in that arena is what you're saying. <laughs> Should we talk about what we're talking about? We should. We're going to be having a conversation with friend of Ed, friend of the pod, podcaster now in his own right. He came on this podcast back in the day. He absorbed, he learned, and he has, like self-teaching AI, he has transformed himself into a podcasting sensation. We are talking to writer, former Labour strategist and fellow cold water swimming obsessive, Alistair Campbell. Now, that podcast might be a phenomenon, but do you still feel slightly superior because you swim in an actual pond and he just swims in a Lido? I know Alice has got this phrase about disagreeing agreeably, but I think it's quite hard to do on the Lido versus ponds. Alistair is slightly a sort of militant Lido advocate. I mean, he once called me Pond Life. You think it's easier for him to put aside his political differences with Rory Stewart than it is for him to accept you as a pond swimmer? I think it is. Well, it didn't come to blows. And regular listeners will be upset that we didn't devote any of the podcast to cold water swimming because there just isn't enough of that on this podcast. There isn't. So Alistair has written a new book. It's called... But what can I do? Uh, a question he often gets asked by people who want to make a difference in the world but don't know where to start. Now, he describes the book as part call to arms, part handbook. And it's a really optimistic read for anyone who is teetering on the edge of wanting to get involved in the world of politics and campaigning, but is looking for a reason and a way to make the first step. What is your reason to be cheerful, Ed Miliband? Well, Jeffrey. Baron Lloyd. My reason to be cheerful is on the culinary theme, which is, it's the, I would say it's sort of Mushu Chicken Part 3. Oh. Well, because regular listeners will know that I've made Mushu Chicken. It was a hit. It was the biggest hit that I've had with my family. I made it a second time. It was a bit bland. So I reached out to Fuchsia Dunlop. Wow. Extreme culinary expert who's written a number of books on Chinese cooking, uh, she very kindly uh, didn't have a recipe herself, but scanned a copy of, of a um, cookbook called Yan Kit's Classic Chinese Cookbook. And I picked up some tips from it. And interestingly, Jeff, the key cloud ear mushrooms aha uh-huh. which are sort of dried mushrooms which i bought on the interweb then put them in boiling water and they magically flower if that's the right word like a hot towel maybe they made a big difference so mushu chicken number three went well congratulations it's a family staple do you think this is a trilogy or are we going to move on to part four i think it's a sort of it's a keeper What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? I had some surgery yesterday. I had my other cataract done. I had oh, the first I wasn't one done at mention Christmas. It. I thought it might be too personal. And I just wanted to say, uh, and I think this any time yeah. I have to have any kind of blood test or vaccination, I am needle phobic. Yeah. And the, the doctors and nurses and health professionals you meet in the NHS, they're so kind with that. Because I always feel embarrassed and I feel like a big baby. And... 
if I was doing that job, you know, the pressure you're under, the amount of people you need to see, I, I don't know where they find the tolerance for it, but they're so great and I just wanted to uh, to salute them. That's nice. On behalf of all the other needle phobes out there. I'm sure they had real pleasure in... Sticking something into me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, Alistair Campbell is in the house, Jeff. Very different Alistair Campbell to the last time we talked to him. When was that? Well, before he was a podcasting sensation. He was, I mean, Leap Leapfrog, I think, uh, really understates it, doesn't it? I mean, he's a sensation. I mean, he's, I've always thought of him as a sensation, but he's now a podcasting sensation. Alistair, what did you put it down to? Rory. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I, don't, I do remember when you started doing your yeah. podcast, I remember, I remember once saying to, to Fiona, God, Ed Miliband going on about this bloody podcast like it's the future. <laughs> and I was thinking, and so I think it's, I think Jeff's right. I think it's that people like the idea of two people from diff- very different backgrounds, very different personalities and different politics but actually who find lots to agree about. And we have this motto, which actually I stole from John Burko, about let's try to disagree agreeably. We've only ever had one really bad argument. What was that about? It was about Northern Ireland when Johnson was doing the protocol stuff. And I was really in such a rage and I sort of took it out on Rory. But generally, we get on well. I think the other thing is we try to explain stuff that... Fiona and I have just been swimming at the Lido and there was a, a guy there who's a regular who brought his daughter, who was 15... And she said, oh, me and my friends, we listen to your podcast because you explain stuff about politics that we don't understand. We, we try and explain stuff. When we did the Albert Hall event, a good third, more than a third of the, of the audience was under 30. That's good. So we're doing something that's getting to young people, which I think, Ed, that a lot of the politics that people see, House of Commons, television interviews, people are just sort of turning away from it. No, no, I agree with that. Can I ask, when you did the live show at the Royal Albert Hall, did you coordinate what to wear? Because whenever we've done live shows, Ed is on the phone asking me what I'm going to wear. I wonder if Rory does the same thing. Oh, my God. Well, I don't know if you saw Rory at the coronation, but he clearly thinks a lot about what he wears because he was wearing a quite spectacular outfit, which which gathered quite a lot of comment. The most advanced it gets is, are you going to wear a tie? Right. (laughs) And generally we don't. We're not too fashion conscious. I'm glad that Ed's very fashion conscious like that. Well, you can tell just by looking at him. Was it the reaction you've had to the podcast which got you thinking about the subject matter of the book, which is called, But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It? Was it doing the podcast that led you to identify this thirst there is out there for people wanting to know what, what they can do and how to make sense of it all? Actually, I was writing the book before, and, and then two things actually came along which really helped with the book. One was the podcast, but the other was being asked to, to do that programme, Make Me Prime Minister. Right. Which I write about in the book where so-called ordinary people, Saida Vasi and I put them through their paces to, to try to, you know, to, to see what it takes to become Prime Minister, which is a Channel 4 programme. So those three things came together. And that was just a nice kind of synergy. So there's quite a lot in the book about about the, the programme and the three, particularly the three young women who made it through to the final, two of whom actively now want to become MPs. And I really hope they do. But I do think it's, it, it has on, honestly surprised me. Fiona and I walk around Hampstead Heath the whole time with the dog. And as you have, Ed, you get people stopping you to talk to you. But this is on a level that I've never known before in terms of 
people wanting to talk about stuff that they've heard on the podcast. But the book is very much in the same vein about how do we make people understand that whether you like this politician or that politician, don't like this one, don't like that one, that you cannot turn away from it. We have to engage in it. And I honestly do believe that we need to work harder to get more young people making the link between the things they care about, whether it's the planet, whether it's inequality, whether it's education, whether it's homelessness, and the need to get engaged in politics and to try to change politics. Okay, let me ask you this question, because it's a sort of Alistair Campbell-style question. The subtitle is Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. Summarise your argument. Why has it gone so wrong and how can you fix it? I think it's gone wrong in the main because of this virus of populism that is affecting politics, not just in the UK, but in various parts of the democratic world. I think it's gone wrong because of the relationship between politics and media. I think it's gone wrong because of polarisation which has been exacerbated by the tech revolution and social media in particular, which has driven more and more people to the extremes. And the other thing that's happened, which I never thought would happen in Britain, but has, because of Johnson and Brexit, has happened and hasn't been expelled from the system yet. And that is that we're we're now in this post-truth era. We see it obviously with Trump. We see it obviously with Putin. We see it with Modi, with Orban, with Erdogan, with Bolsonaro when he was in Brazil. But we have it here as well. The tipping point was the crash. I think the crash was something that people felt the people in power let them down. They ended up paying the price. The people who caused it got away with it. And so, you know, we're, we're now in this mess. And how do we get out of it? I think we get out of it by, by building a sense of engagement in politics, by making people realize that actually they cannot walk away from it. And also by showing people that it can be good. I mean, I, I felt this when we were doing the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I just thought, God, if only people could see that this is actually what politics can do. And the other thing, Ed, I think particularly for you, I think the political class as a whole has got to do a much better job of defending itself, defending politics, not just, you know, defending your own position. And I think we've lost the educative piece of political debate. I do think one of the things that Tony and Clinton and that generation were really good at was kind of educating people about the issues that they were wrestling with. I think that we've become far too focused on our own narrow argument. Can you give an example of that just to see what you mean? Northern Ireland. Right. How do you persuade the UK, of which Northern Ireland is a, is a part, that actually this matters to everybody? And that is why we are having to put in so much of our time and energy into it. You have to make sure that people understand the arguments, understand the importance. I would also say, to be, you know, to be fair to Ed, I think Ed has done a really good job on the educative side. He's had a lot of support from amazing people like you know, Greta Thunberg and all the other environmental campaigners. But I think the educative work that's been done on climate actually going back a couple of decades now has been a, a very good example of it, where the dial on the debate gets moved. You could argue it does not move quickly enough. This is a book of two halves, I would say, because the first half is really why it's gone wrong. And the second half is fixing it. But But let me just push you a bit on the sort of, not the kind of what gone wrong, but why. You, you start with the financial crisis, and I'm sure the financial crisis is part of it. And maybe I'm a bit too economically determinist on this, but because this seems to me to be the absolute key question is why is the populism of the right 
sort of thriving in the way it is. And isn't it that that the capitalism we have is too unequal, too unfair, and has left so many people out that it creates the ground for for populism to thrive? And actually, it kind of goes back beyond the financial crisis, if we're honest about this. It's deindustrialization. What's the core reason for populism and the forces that you don't like thriving? I think inequality is a huge part of it. I think if you look at the the countries which are perceived to be more equal, they are being affected by this populist virus less. But it's interesting, Canada, which always features pretty high up all those lists of happiness and well-being and all that stuff, populism is starting to infect Canadian politics as well now. They've got this guy, Pierre Poilievre, who's the leader of the Conservative Party, and he's really got a touch of the Farage about him. There's lots of different factors in, in, inherent in the answer to the question you've asked, Ed. But I do think that one thing is that the, the left, the centre-left in politics, the progressive side of politics, we've definitely seen it with woke. I think we saw it with Brexit. I think we saw it with immigration. It's almost like we sort of can't understand why they think that's going to be effective as their sort of the central pillar of their campaign. And we sort of let it go too easily. If you think of this woke argument and how quickly it's developed from being nothing to something, and I think that's because we didn't kill it at birth. And I think the argument against this whole Lee Anderson style of politics is actually to say it's born of the fact that you've got no record to point to, you've got no real plan for the future, so all you've got is this stuff. I think it's actually to some extent a failure of politics and, and, and the progressive parties to see where things are going. There's a bit of a, a disjunction between the pace of change in people's lives and the pace of change in political argument. Talk to us about trust and trust in politics and how you think about that. Because but one thing that does strike me, and we can sort of speculate and talk about the reasons for this, is that when Tony was running for office in 1997, he had particular talents, but I also think people were more willing to believe. And I think 25 years or more on, it's just a much more uphill struggle for people to think any politician is truthful. I mean, the country, I don't want to exaggerate it, Tony had an amazing honeymoon, 90% approval ratings, whatever it was, you know, et cetera, 70%, you know, which politicians just wouldn't get today, however talented they were. What's your explanation? Is it disappointment? Is it broken promises? Again, I think it's complicated. I, th- I think that one of the reasons that we did as well as we did back then is I think we were at the last period where there was at least a kind of benefit of the doubt given to to politicians. I I think that's gone. It hasn't totally gone, by the way. When it comes to something like COVID, when we we all sit down and we have to listen to our politicians, even when they're as venal and awful as Boris Johnson, we sort of listen to them. So it's not all gone. I can remember when Tony first got that first landslide victory. I remember it was day one, he and I having a conversation. God, this is going to be really difficult because how do you... How do you meet the expectations of this kind of mood? Now, I think we did meet those expectations to a large degree. I guess the, the really big thing, I think the trust issue with Tony, I think it was happening pre-Iraq. Uh, I think partly was happening because though the country fell in love with Tony, large parts of the media didn't. 
And I think the media sort of just chipping away at his reputation the whole time, it had an effect. Iraq clearly didn't help. Tuition fees, I think, was a, a big problem in this. And I also think the thing that happened is that people's expectations in the modern media age, and social media doesn't help with this at all, is this sense of instant gratification, that everything you want, you can get it now. And as you know, politics is a long, tough grind. And, and I think that that erodes trust. And then, you know, I really wouldn't underestimate the damage done to politics globally of having Donald Trump as a dominant figure in our debate for four years. People just turn away from that kind of stuff. But isn't he a symptom rather than a cause, though? No, I think it's both. I think Brexit was a symptom and a cause of our decline. And I think Trump is both a symptom and a cause of America's decline. Do you think, like, when you reflect on those years in government, that stonking majorities can be a problem in this erosion of trust? Because you've got a huge majority at an election that can be treated, and, and Iraq is sort of mm. the big example of this. We've got a mandate to do what we want, however much public mood has changed at the time. Do you think sort of a, a different voting system, something with more compromise in it? Yeah, but even as you were saying that, I mean, when we did the Scotland Act to create the, the Scottish Parliament, Part of the thinking then was we had so much power in Westminster. We were at that time so powerful in Scotland. There must be a different way of doing it. And even the architecture of the chamber and so forth. But Scottish politics feels very kind of visceral as well. So I don't think it's as simple as that. But I do believe, I've definitely moved my opinion on this. I'm not sort of wholly there yet. But I actually, I think that the driving narrative in the country at the moment, the, there's a really big desire to get rid of the Tories. There really is. I think, I think that's what the big message of the local elections was. And I actually think Labour can start to think without being remotely complacent, but actually start to think about winning pretty big. And I think that would be a good thing. However, I don't think it's just about a change of government now. I think people really, really want a change in the way that politics is done. And part of the messaging of the book is to say to the parties, you've got to open up to more young people. You've got to make it easier for young people to engage and get involved in the way that they want to, as opposed to, as Ed knows, happens so often where young people get inspired, get fired up, and then they go to local party meetings. And it's kind of, that's the last time you see them, because they God, is that what happens? It's got to be kind of modernised. At various stages of writing the book, I sent drafts and sections of it to a little network of young people that I know, including my, my nephew, who's now a council leader. And, you know, I think, that, I think that the thing that he said, which was really interesting, made a big impression on me, he said, look, you, me, Alistair, your experience of politics has largely been right at the top alongside the Labour Party leader who became the Prime Minister. You try doing it at my level. You try doing it at a level where you've got a family, you've got a really busy job, you want to do stuff and you're surrounded by all these people who think you've got to do it the way it's been done since they started doing it 40 years ago and trying to change that culture. But I think we've got to change that culture. Let's talk about solutions, um, which is the second half of the book. Where do you think the solutions lie? I think they lie in people understanding that the stuff that they care about is actually about politics. So there's an educative piece that has to be done. I really wish we had proper political education in schools from an early age. Votes for 16? Votes for 16, no doubt at all. But one of the best things about the Scottish referendum was the fact that young people were so engaged in it. 
you know, Labour's focus at the moment is we're going to get rid of the House of Lords and its present state and all that. That's fine. I think people understand that. But I think we need something much, much bigger, which makes people feel we want their voice in our politics. I've been very taken with this thing that Peter Hyman, who worked for us in number 10, he then went off to be a head teacher. He's now back working with Keir Starmer. And he started this charity called Voice 21, which is about oracy, about young people understanding the the power of their voice. But how do you speak? How do you communicate? How do you get engaged and how do you get involved? So I think that's something else in the education space which we we need to teach. 21 prime ministers have come from Eton in our history. Seven have come from the Labour Party. That's because they get taught confidence. I know they've got the background, they've got the money and the, all that. That's, I'm not saying that's not important, but they get taught to feel that their voice matters more than anybody else. Well, we've got to give kids that feeling in the 93% of school that, that, that they use. I completely agree with that. You've coined a word, Alistair. Perseverance. Perseverance. Is, is this going to end up in those newspaper articles at Word of the Year uh, oh, 2023? Is that what you're going for here? I get certain obsessions, and my, one of my current obsessions is that perseverance becomes a word in the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> There's actually a middle bit in the book, which I think I see it as being in three parts. The problem, the solution at the end, but the middle part is about how do we look after ourselves and each other. And that a lot of that is about about confidence, about stamina, about energy, about how you look after yourself mentally. You know, like, Ed, you've led a, a, an election campaign. As Bill Clinton once said, you know, election campaigns are the only activity that makes everybody look like their passport photo. <laughs> how do you deal with those levels of stress? How do you deal with nerves? I've got a se- the section on public speaking. If we have most of our kids scared of public speaking, we're not going to get many kids going into politics. So perseverance is about how can we learn? So so I guess I'm not sugarcoating politics at all. I'm saying it's nasty. It can be brutal. Social media abuse, particularly for women and women of colour, is off the scale horrible. But you've got to keep going. So that's the perseverance part. And the resilience part is actually how do you come back from a setback? What, how do you learn from mistakes? How do, you, how do you deal with defeat? How do you deal with the stuff that goes wrong to make it less likely to go wrong the next time around? I think you put those things together, perseverance and resilience, perseverance, that's what you actually need in politics. And it's not about being thick-skinned. I've got a thick skin. I think I'm quite lucky in that. But it's not about thick, being thick-skinned. It's about separating out what matters and what doesn't. There's a passage in the book where I, with Julia Gillard, who I love Julia Gillard, and I think she's an amazing woman and an amazing story. Working class family from Wales, emigrate to Australia, very shy kid, not sure of herself, but discovers this ability to kind of persuade people. And then a, a friend, she thinks she's going to be a teacher. A friend's mum says, you should be a lawyer. She goes to be a lawyer, becomes prime minister, etc. And I said to her, well, that's all great, but you know, you endured some of the worst misogyny and loathing that most women would find very difficult to put up with. And how do you really honestly say to a young woman today, yeah, I think politics is a great thing to do. And she said, because when I think back on my career, I don't think about any of that. I think about the fact that we did this and we did this. And how do you feel when you actually can do something that lifts children out of poverty? And that's the way we have to think about it. And that to me is perseverance. She just kept going through the bad times, and she learned from it, and she got stuff done. It's funny you should say this, because you mentioned in the book a party that we were both at for Harriet Harman, Yeah, I think marking her anniversary in Parliament. Yeah. And your 
um, reaction to the party was rather similar to mine, which is I worked for Harriet as my first job in politics, and and I sort of, you know, she went through a lot of ups and downs, I think it's fair to say. But actually, I said this to her, funnily enough, when she announced she was standing down. Um, That's not what you remember about her. What you remember about her is that she was a trailblazer who fought for, you know, incredible causes, including women in politics, including, you know, issues that had been ignored for so long. And it's it's on this it's on the big sweep of what she achieved Mm. that you judge her, not some up or down that she had in her career. It's hard to keep your eye on that, though, when you're in the middle of it, I guess. It certainly is. Yeah, yeah. it's very hard, and it's particularly hard now with all, all the noise around politics. But I, I was really, really struck by that, because as, as you know, Ed, I don't really enjoy going back to Parliament. I, I, I just I feel very strange in there, and I, I don't feel it's my kind of environment anymore. And, and but So I was a bit reluctant about going to that event. It was in the Speaker's house, uh, Lindsay Hoyle made a speech, Keir made a speech, Margaret Hodge made a speech. And, you know, I had some really big ups and downs with Harriet during her time as a, as a minister. But I, I was just so struck by it. And the fact also that she'd lost her husband, uh, her kids were there and the kids are amazing and smart and clever. So I've ended, I'm glad you spotted that bit in the book. I've, I've, I've written what is essentially a period of praise to Harriet Harman's career. She is and was a trailblazer. And I think the point I was making in that is that the public like to say, oh, these MPs, they're all the same, they're all out for themselves, etc. And it's so not the case. And I was just trying to think of one good example of that. And it, I was actually writing that chapter when I went to that event and I came away. I was actually quite moved by the whole thing. Can I just pick up on something you said there? When you're talking about your feelings when you go back inside of that building, that suggests that you're holding some trauma, that there's something about that experience in those years that feels like painful to you in, in this way. And, you know, you, you just a few minutes ago described yourself as a thick skinned person, but you've also, you know, written and, and, and done a lot around mental health. Is, is there something to pull together from all that, that politics in its current form, it just asks too much of people? Oh God, that's quite a big question that. I don't know why I feel like I do. I think partly I feel slightly like a bit of a museum piece wandering around. Uh-huh. I know they all do. Like if Ed wanders around Parliament, the tourists are there, so there's Ed Miliband, but Ed's got a role there still. And the other thing I find is that with both the politicians and, of course, the journalists that you bump into the whole time there, I feel they're in a different world to the one that I'm in now. You know, the number of times you'll wander in and somebody say, you know, did you read Polly Toynbee's column? about such and such and I said no I haven't or you know have you seen such and such a person Tory MPs made that intervention the so and so no I haven't and it's like I was I guess if there is a trauma it's the fact that when I was there both as a journalist and then working with with Tony and the Labour Party I was utterly totally consumed by it and I think that did have a detrimental effect on on my mind and on my life at times but I think it's also it goes back to this thing about feeling politics has to change I know that tradition's an important part of our culture and so forth, but I, I really do often feel when I'm going in there, I'm walking back to the same place as I went to 40, nearly 50 years ago now. And it's not just about the architecture, it's about the feel of it. You know, I do a lot of work in the Balkans. You go into their government buildings of their parliament, it feels more vibrant. So I think that's what it is. Alistair, if you were writing a letter to Alistair Campbell 
1996 or just on the eve of the 1997 general election. Maybe, maybe a fax if it was 96. Yeah. Maybe a fax. Paging myself. <laughs> what would you say to him that you know now that you didn't know then about politics and what's gone wrong and how you can help fix it? I think I would say that I don't know whether it would have been possible to do what we did over the period that we did it if we hadn't have been as rigorous, focused, disciplined and all the things that we were. But I do wonder if I couldn't, particularly this goes actually for my relations with the media, which I think did become a problem, not just for me, but at a time for Tony as well. I do wonder whether we couldn't have done more to get to the place that I now feel I'm more comfortable with, which is this motto that I have with Rory about disagreeing agreeably. I think we all of us, and particularly somebody like me, who is very tribal and can be very aggressive and so forth, we have to look at the role that we all play in allowing ourselves to be tribalised and polarised and whether that actually is very good for, for political debate. So I think it would, be, it would be in that area. But I certainly would say, don't go into this thinking you're going to have a nice, quiet life. Don't go into this thinking you're going to be nine to five. Don't go into this thinking you're not going to have your holidays interrupted because that is going to happen. And I think we have to accept at a certain level in the political landscape it has to be like that because because it matters so much and because you're dealing with so many different things so there's a big cost to that then you're basically saying to people that maybe the the pie chart of your life isn't going to be as well balanced as it should be mentally or in terms of your personal relationships or perhaps how you are as a parent you're saying that that is just a given at a certain level of politics i i I think it is and 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 i think that i think it's important to be honest about that I think at the, at the same time, I mean, one thing I did as the, as it were, the leader of my team, I was and probably still am a bit of a workaholic and I'd be first in and quite often last out. But I would be very clear and honest and mean it with the people working for me that I didn't expect them to be like that. I don't think everybody should be like that. I think that, but I think at a certain level, I, I don't see if you're doing the job that Ed did leading the party, doing the job that Tony did when he was prime minister that Gordon did. It's, there's a part of it has got to be in your mind even when you're sleeping. You know, I, I, I used to have some of the best and worst ideas while I was asleep and I would wake up in the middle and I'd say, oh, wow, let's do this. What's the weirdest thing you ever wrote down on the, the pad next to your bed? Oh, do you know what? I was reminded of it, of the worst thing recently. <laughs> this is so bad. This came out in the, in the recent release of papers related to the Good Friday Agreement, the 25-year 20, or whatever it is was I had an idea in the referendum, <laughs> in the Good Friday Agreement referendum, that we should persuade Celtic and Rangers to play a match in Belfast, but that Celtic players would wear Rangers strips and Rangers players would wear Celtic strips. And I put it on paper and I sent it to Donald Dewar, Scottish Secretary, and Mo Molum. And anyway, Donald Dewar's was the best. He just basically said, is this... Are we serious? Are we serious? <laughs> Can I ask the, the feeling you described before of, uh, you know, maybe feeling if you go into Parliament that, that you, your time has passed, you belong to a different age. How much did you need to set that aside going into writing the book in terms of the uh, the ideas to fix it? Because the, the world is different. The internet was barely a thing when Labour came to power in 97. Are the underlying strategies the same? Or did you have to think about a, the fact that a different era demands a different approach? 
Yeah, well, w- when I first started writing the book, the, the initial idea was, and this may have been a way of me saying, I'm, I am now in a different stage of my life and I'm moving on. The original idea was, the, the title was going to be something like Pass on the Baton. And it'd be actually to say, our generation has left the world in a bit of a mess. Young generation's got to take it over. Here's a kind of older man advice. And it's, and I started, that's when I started to send it out to younger people. And, and it was interesting how a lot of them said, no, no, hold on a minute. You don't want to do it like that. This has got to be about what you can actually do with us yeah. as a younger generation to try to try to get things moving in, in a different direction. And that's why I started to send it out to them in the way that I did. And I do think the internet, the point about the internet, I, I say in the book that, you know, I know that Brexit is a disaster. I know that Cambridge Analytica was involved and important. I don't really understand it, though. And that's why, actually, I went and talked to Chris Wiley about it, because he's sort of, he's gone into that in in some depth. I don't really understand the, all this talk about artificial intelligence and the effect that it's going to have on the economy and on politics and so forth. So I think that's where you have to be honest about. We, we fought in a very, very different era. Uh, I still think you need a, a very, very clear objective. You've got to be very strategic in your approach. Storytelling is incredibly important. Some of these things don't change, but the means by which you do them are changing faster probably than the political process can cope with. Last question from me, Alistair. Um, what keeps you optimistic? Good, lots of good stuff's happening. Burnley just got promoted as champions. I think what keeps me optimistic is, is, is the fact that so many young people that you do meet are onto this, do get it. I think the other thing that makes me optimistic is that, I mean, look, you're wrestling with this climate stuff the whole time. But although there have been kind of catastrophic episodes in the history of humanity, we sort of have managed to get through them and move on to the onto the next stage. And so I feel the next stage will develop in a positive way. And I think that the other thing I'd say is that I think the downside of life to some extent is the pace of change. But when things get bad, that can be the upside. Things can change quite quickly. My favourite quote, I've got all these quotes on the wall upstairs in my office, uh, these political quotes, they're all over the wall. And, but people know what needs to change. What we have to do now is work out the how and I think that our generation is involved in that, but I think the next generation is going to come along and, and fix it. I think the one that absolutely, if I, if I just had to pick one that I was allowed, it's that one from Mandela, everything is impossible until you make it happen. Great. Good note to end on. Uh, the book is But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I'm now going off to Manchester to sit on a panel with Ed Balls, Philip Hammond, and George Osborne. Oh, you're just saying that to make Ed jealous. <laughs> no, Ed is not jealous. Ed is going to actually into the House of Commons to sit down and work out the next stages of Labour's plan for power. You're on. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Oh, can I tell you about something? Go on. On our Succession podcast, which comes out, uh, I guess, tomorrow, if you listen to this, yeah. we're going to be interviewing David Rashi and Peter Friedman. Now, they play, respectively, Carl and Frank on the show. Do you know who I mean? Yes. Sort of Logan's yes. C-suite. And I'm so excited to see Carl's big head on a video call and uh, and also Peter Friedman, because he was one of the original Muppet performers. He did uh, various Muppets on the original Muppet show. I mean, that is exciting. You can bring to mind Gilda Radner singing, I'm the very model of a modern major general with a giant talking carrot. 
That was Frank inside the carrot. Are you going to ask him about that? Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine I'll ask, ask about much else, really. Well, shall we thank our guest? Yes, your friend. AC, Alastair Campbell, thank you. And the book is called But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. Can I just say, I, 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 the first time you did it, I didn't want to say, but is there an emphasis issue there? But what can I do? But what can I do? I was trying to work out what this sort of emphasis is. But what can I do? But, but what can I do? Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And in fact, he does uh, on the cover, the eye is in red. So, But what can I do? But what can I do? Hmm. There's many different ways of saying it. <laughs> ah, but what can I do? <sighs> but what can I do? Yeah, I think mine, mine was a more resigned version, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe. But what can I do? Yours is active. Mine is passive. But what can I do? That's perfect. We got it. That's the take. No. No, I think that's a bit too self-referential. But what can I do? I think the emphasis is on the do. Mm. Well, you should get on to your friend Alistair and tell him to highlight that in red. Yeah, for the next edition. Now, I hear you did an excellent job with the credits last week. Oh, it was so difficult, honestly. You see? I had to do like three or four takes. The invisible work of a podcast co-host. I just thought it was easy. I thought I could do without no. you, but now I realise I can't. Yeah, that's why I've consistently got it wrong for six years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, so um, Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Ably supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been... Reasons to to be cheerful.